0: Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, lagonvalleyvineyard.com. Brilliant. Um, let's jump into what I want to talk about uh, this morning. Um, I wonder what you think the love and favor of God looks like when it's in or on a life. Like if you were to describe a life that has been obviously blessed by God, how would you describe that life? What do you think that life would look like? I wonder how many of us would talk about things like health and wealth and influence and attention all these external markers that are what lives look like when they're successful and blessed. Well, why don't you pick up a black Bible, turn to page 673 and you'll see there 673, Matthew chapter four, Stu read this earlier for us, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna read it out again, but we finished last week Right, The end of Matthew chapter three, Jesus comes up out of the waters of his baptism and God the Father speaks over him. This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. There is this profound declaration of God's love and favor and blessing on Jesus. And you would think that after a pronouncement like that, things can only get better, right? I mean, if there's anyone more blessed and favored by God that's walked the earth, it's probably Jesus, right? And so here we see Jesus being affirmed by God. This is my son, I love him, I'm so pleased with him. He's about to step into all of the blessing and favor of God, and you see what that looks like in chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil you ever have a really God moment? Like, you know, God speaks to you or you're at a conference or a church service and you're like, whoa, like I just really experienced the presence of Jesus and he affirmed me and he reminded me how much he loves me and he's with me and then the next day you wake up and you're like, where did that go? Like, what what happened there? This is so interesting to me. Remember, we talked about this last week, God never acts how we expect. Literally, the very next verse, after God affirms his love for Jesus, he leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Like in one moment, I really love you, and the next moment, right, come on over here, you're going to have a bit of a hard time for a minute or two. I wonder how many of us would say that's what love and favor looks like. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And verse 2 says that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights. Matthew's gospel is dripping with all sorts of metaphors and almost whispers of the story of God. And to a Jewish audience, 40 days in the wilderness being tested would instantly have made them think about the exodus, Forty years in the wilderness, being tested, and by the way, normally failing the test. The text goes on to say, after forty days, Jesus was hungry. It's kind of obvious, right? The Greek, the Greek word there is uh, hungry. Forty days with no food, and. He is hungry. Jesus in this moment after his 40 in the wilderness is about to recover the destiny that was written over Israel all along to be the one who would provide light and life for the entire world. And he's been fasting for 40 days. He's absolutely starving, weak and exhausted, And it says, then the tempter comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. Notice that the devil goes straight for the very thing that God has just said. The last verse of chapter three, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And the enemy comes and says, well if that's true, prove it. Like if God really said that, if God really feels that way about you, then prove it. How many of us are haunted by a need to prove ourselves? I meet people all the time who have perhaps subconsciously designed their entire lives in response to the careless words of someone long ago. A parent, a teacher, a colleague, maybe even a friend. A pronouncement perhaps less positive than that was just spoken over Jesus. But words nonetheless that have come to define and drive you. And the thing that is even more sad than that is many of us are consumed trying to prove someone that's not even in our lives wrong. Somebody that's not even in our lives anymore. And everything is designed around proving that that thing they once said long ago was wrong, empty wells that will never give us what we need. See, testing always begins with a question of how we understand who we are. It always begins with an assault on, do you really know who you are? And the devil comes to Jesus and says, if you really are the son of God, then do this. Like, that's really who you are. And, and how many of us, when provoked that way, go, okay, yeah, absolutely, I'm gonna do whatever I need to do to prove that I am who I think I am. I'm gonna prove myself. The enemy comes and tests Jesus' confidence in his identity. And it's so, so sneaky. He comes and he goes, you're hungry. God loves you. Use the power that he's given you to help yourself. It's so obvious. God's given you the ability to do these things. Why sit there starving? Just turn the stones into bread and be more comfortable. Satisfy that hunger in you. Pervert the prophetic call in your life to serve yourself. The devil always tempts us to use our calling and God's power for selfish ends. And in it, the true desire and longing of Jesus gets exposed. What does Jesus really long for? That's what's getting probed here. You ever have a moment where like maybe you've had a really busy day and you haven't quite had time for lunch. And then it kind of happens about three o'clock, you start to become something other than yourself. You know? And you're like, I'm so sorry, I just haven't had any lunch today. I'm just really hungry. My children, when they don't get food, genuinely become demons. It's like, what has happened to these three beautiful people that I love and now seem completely incapable of any normal human interaction? This is interesting. Whenever the things that we believe sustain us are removed, what we really long for <coughs> comes out. And we're going to fast for a week together in February. I love Lauren's enthusiasm and the contrast in the room. I'm so excited we're doing a week of prayer and fasting. Everyone went, on your own, love. (laughs) She'll be excited and we will get involved, right? It's so interesting because it's in those moments that what we really desire And what we believe really sustains our life gets exposed. And here Satan comes to Jesus and goes, you're starving and you're able to use your power to turn the stone into bread. Go ahead, go ahead. And Jesus says, my life's built on something much more important than bread. In this moment, having been hungry for days and days and days, weeks, Even in this moment, there's something I long for more than food. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says there's something I desire much more than physical nourishment. The second test, the devil then takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple. Incidentally, do you ever read that and wonder how they got there? Like what did did that look like, The, the transportation from wilderness to the top of the temple. It was a teleportation, demonic chariot. How did that work? I don't know, you can talk about that over lunch. Anyway, he takes him to the top of the temple and continues to press him on his identity. If you're the son of God, throw yourself off here. And then he quotes Psalm 91. God will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 8 verse three, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It is so important here we notice the contrast in how the scripture is used. So often, if we're using this as an example, I notice Christians use the Bible more like the devil than like Jesus. What am I talking here? The devil presents a promise of God as something to be used or exploited rather than something that points to the desire and nature of God. How, how many of us have God's promises on fridges and post-it notes and we, we treat them like some sort of like a bargaining chip that we can just kinda pull down on whenever we need it as if God owes us something. That's exactly the way Satan is using Psalm 91 here. Here's what God promised, so just throw yourself off. He promised it, so he has to do it, right? The promises of God in the Bible tell us what God is like. They are never to be used as cosmic bargaining chips. And Satan taunts Jesus with one of God's promises, and Jesus rebukes him. Many of us would be well served to do the same. What I love about this passage is you'll notice at the end of it, God does indeed send angels. Because he can't help but be himself. But the question that's being exposed in this moment on top of the temple is does God exist to serve you or do you exist to serve God? Does God exist to serve you or do you exist to serve God? And one of the best ways to audit that in our lives is to notice what comes out in our conversations and our prayers when life gets a bit difficult or hard. And who do we blame? Often we blame God as though he exists to just serve us and he's not keeping up his end of the bargain. And we have religious superstition way more than we have actual healthy discipleship. Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple and tempts him to pervert the priestly call in his life to impress everyone. And then finally, he takes Jesus to the top of a high mountain where he shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and their magnificence. And he says to him, I will give you all of this if you will worship me. Satan's getting desperate now, and who he really is appears. Worship me, and I will give you your destiny without a price. I will give you the kingdom without the cross. And this is exactly how the tempter, the devil, Satan, works in our life. Most of us think temptation is around really awful things. Usually, it's actually a shortcut to God things with no cost attached. My grandfather used to tell me, anything you get for free is worth half of what you paid for it. Explain that again. Anything you get for free is worth half of what you paid for it. Essentially, nothing. You see, we've been so schooled in the free gift of grace that we've completely lost an understanding and even an expectation that discipleship will cost And it does. For some of us, the idea that Christ and Christianity would cost, dare I say it, even offends us. I can't tell you the number of people, myself included, who decide to follow Jesus and then in some ways their lives fall apart. And everything gets hard and gets difficult. What's that about? What's going on? We have to be so careful that when we talk about the gospel and the call of God in our lives, that we don't reduce it to God's going to make your dreams come true. The grace of God is free and it costs us everything. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer so powerfully said, this is long, bear with me because it's beautiful. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Grace that costs The things that cost us are the things that we value. And I I wonder, and I don't mean to get overly heavy with us, but I, I wonder is this a moment, not just for our church, but I do hear this from friends leading churches all across the land right now, is the foundation of cheap grace being exposed? Where we would use the sacrifice of Jesus to somehow just add to our lives rather than being in awe of the beauty and wonder of a God who would give everything for us so that we could give everything for Him. The gospel makes no sense if it doesn't include a cost. And Satan offers Jesus a kingdom without a cross and therefore without a crown. He tempts him to pervert the call on his life to be king and to settle for becoming a puppet. And I would love to have more detail in the way that Jesus responds to this final test. But he finally just says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then verse 11 finishes with, then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. It's the first it's finished moment pointing to a much greater it's finished moment that we'll get to some point in 2021. It's done. It's finished. And the devil leaves and the angels come. Have you ever uh, done something that took everything out of you but you actually finished it? Wish I could say it's like run a marathon but I don't know what that's like. i Have climbed several mountains all over the world. There's something about that moment when you've got to the top and got safely back to your car, exhausted with your body hurting and, you know, just done. But you're like, we did it. Did it. Yeah, you must have to imagine this is that times a million where this cosmic confrontation between the perfect Son of God and the Prince of Darkness has just happened. And it's finished for now. An and the devil leaves and the angels come. These tests, after 40 days of fasting, little rest, and in his weakest moment, the enemy comes to Jesus, and who he really is, is revealed. One who desires God more than anything else. One who will refuse to see God as existing to serve him, and one who will refuse his destiny without a price. It's who he really is. It's funny, like I said earlier, in our weaker moments, who we become. Any of you ever find yourself like, you know, maybe you've had a really crazy week or a busy month and you're exhausted and you snap maybe at a friend or a spouse and you say something like, I'm really sorry, I'm just really tired. The truer version of that sentence is, I'm, I'm really sorry, I'm just me. Because what happens in those moments of weakness and hunger and exhaustion is our ability to present the representative goes away. i never forget being with Dana's family in the States a few years ago, and she's three uh, cousins that are more like sisters to her. And uh, one of the cousins had got a new boyfriend, and uh, she was raving about this guy. I mean, like, he sounded like Jesus himself, right? (laughs) And one of the other cousins said, Ross, how many dates have you been on with this guy? And she said, three, and it's been the greatest three nights of my life, whatever. And uh, she said, you haven't even met him yet. You're still dating the representative. So insightful, right? And the reality is, most of our lives, with most of the people that we engage with, who they're interfacing with is the representative, the best version of ourselves. Full of breakfast, properly rested, and able to curate our image. But skip breakfast, have a kid who's been up all night and the representative is harder to muster and we find ourselves using these excuses. I didn't get any breakfast this morning or I'm just really tired. When the reality is that's just me without the ability to present this other version of myself. Now don't feel bad, just be encouraged. You've work to do. And in this moment, we see Jesus in his weakest state being revealed for who he truly is. The only one good enough to rescue us all. I wanna land this afternoon um, just unpacking how we actually apply this stuff in our lives. Because the idea of testing, I think, is almost non-existent in our uh, spiritual formation and our worldview when it comes to how we approach God and Jesus. Where does your mind go when life gets really difficult? Like how do you explain what's going on around you when it looks like things are maybe falling apart? Typically, there are three ways that we explain life being really difficult. Some of us reach for spiritual attack. I'm I'm just under spiritual attack. The devil's getting at me, right? Some of us go for, well, it's just life. We live in a broken, fallen world, and that means that things don't always work out, and, you know, life's hard. The third one, though, that most of us never talk about that's absolutely true is sometimes things are hard because God's testing us. And how you respond to what's going on around you needs to be determined by the origins of that hard stuff. So if it's a spiritual attack, we need to learn how to resist that. If it's a spiritual test, we need to learn how to submit to that. And if it's just life because life's hard, then we need to learn how to persevere through that. But you start to see how, if you don't know what's going on, you can be in all sorts of mess because if you're resisting something that you should be submitting to, then you circumvent the process. If you're submitting to something that you should be resisting, then you're welcoming all sorts of nonsense that you don't have to deal with in your life. And likewise, if you're resisting or submitting to something that you should simply be persevering through, then typically God gets the blame because you're trying to do the right thing, but none of it's changing. How do you learn to see what's spiritual attack, what's spiritual test, and what's just life? We have to um, shake off this tendency to just oversimplify everything. I hate to tell you, but Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. It's not quite gonna cut it. If we are going to be formed into the fullness of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit's longing for each one of us so that we can occupy our place within God's kingdom, advancing it wherever we find ourselves tomorrow, then being formed is really, really important. It's a big part of why we do three, two, one. It's why we're doing tonight. It's so, so, so important that we learn how to be formed. And testing is a hugely important part of how God forms us. So, Hannah, why don't you come up? Where are you? I want us to do a bit of an exercise, and then I'm going to um, land this quickly with just a couple of... Um, couple of other things. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get Hannah to play a song for us, and uh, I'm going to invite you to stand, but I don't want you to sing along, okay? I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to think about the hard stuff that's in your life right now, okay? So just about all of us are have something in our life that's hard, right? And if you don't, if you genuinely have nothing hard going on in your life, you just come pray for me, okay? Um, so... I want you to think about something hard that's going on in your life as Hannah's plan and then I want you to invite God to speak to you about it. I want you to ask him the question, God, is this attack? Is this test? Or is this just life? Okay, so we're just gonna reflect on that for a minute. If you're able, why don't you stand? Try not to think about lunch, those of you that are hungry. Just stay with us for a few minutes. I'm not going to draw this out. Three questions. God, is this an attack? Is this a test? Or is this just life? Just begin to ask him that question, reflect on it. And then I'm going to jump back up in a second and lead us through some stuff on how we respond to that.